your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, church family. It is good to be here with you. Oh, thanks, man. Feeling the love from the front row. Um, a couple things up front. First of all, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, yeah, it's a great day to celebrate. Uh, for me, I know I've been blessed uh, in so many ways. It's such a blessing to be a husband and father, and God has used my children in, in so many ways to continue to teach me about his goodness and love. Um, and so it's a blessed day. I also, I do want to acknowledge, I know this day can, it can be difficult for, for many. And so just to speak into that and say for you, if you are here today, and this is a day that brings up uh, difficulty or hardship, to know that we love you and that God loves you. And he is the perfect father who will never fail you. And so I pray today that God would envelop you with his love and, and lift you up and let this be a day you get to celebrate in him. Um, secondly, I want to point out something you probably have already noticed. I am not Chauncey, nor am I Jared. I come before you today as your third string preacher. That's right. Uh, but the good news for you is there is no third string Holy Spirit. It is one and the same spirit uh, in each and every one of us. And so I come to you and proclaim the same word that my brothers would proclaim with the same power of the same spirit. And so it is in that I want to go ahead and pray as we start today for Chauncey and Jared, who are both not feeling well, pray for their healing and a quick recovery, but also pray that God would move and work today to help us to hear his word and grow close to him. So would you bow your heads and pray with me now? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. I do want to lift up Chauncey and Jared to you. Love these brothers. And I pray for healing for comfort and for quick recovery, God, that you would be with them and help them to um, get over what, this illness quickly. Medicine would be effective and, um, God, that you would be uh, with their families in this time as well. Lord, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see and hearts and minds to know and believe. Would you um, lift up your word, God, and I pray you would be glorified in what we do here. It'd be for the good of your people and to the glory of your name. Thank you again so much that we get to come and to praise you together as brothers and sisters in this place. Pray that you would be glorified now in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want to start with actually a story from Brother Chauncey. He had shared this story with me as we were sharing notes and uh, preparing this, uh, for, the, for this time. And he, he shared a story of back in the day that he remembered growing up and spending time on Sunday afternoons and hearing his dad ask his mom, what do you have a taste for? And uh, in essence, his dad was asking his mom, hey, what do, what do you want to eat? But he would always say, what do you have a taste for? And Chauncey said he remembered his mom would 
have all these different things that she'd, she'd list. Sometimes it was Popeye's chicken. Sometimes it was collard greens. Sometimes it was um, Cajun seafood, which I was like, man, that I missed growing up wherever you grew up, Chauncey. And so, but he said, one thing I did remember, Chauncey remembered this distinctly, is that his dad never asked him the question. He said, he always asked my mom, but he never asked me. And Chauncey said, reflecting on it, I think it was because he knew that if I was asked the question, the answer would have been, what do I taste for? Uh, Bluebell cookies and cream ice cream? Uh, the, like, white sugary dessert at CeCe's? Um, maybe some other snacks, like, uh, for me, it would be pizza rolls, right? If somebody asked me the question. The point was, Chauncey realized that his mother's palate was much more refined than his own, right? Chauncey just wanted things that tasted good, but that wouldn't necessarily provide the sustenance they needed to get through the day. His mother knew that they needed food that would actually give them nutrients and give them what they need to make it. And so they listened. It's interesting to think about in our passage today, we see this exact same thing. There are many things we can taste for out there. There are many things we can, that taste good to us, but there's only one thing truly that gives us all we need. It's Christ. We see that in this passage. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that there is a food that's unlike any other food. Right? I want you to think of your favorite food, whatever it is, picture in your mind, get the flavors in your mouth, think about your favorite food, but I want you to think about this food differently, that not only is it your favorite food, it's the best taste you have, but it's also a superfood now. Now it tastes better than any other food, and it satisfies you more than anything else. And not just that, it provides all the nutrients you need to make you grow. It's so good that in comparison to it, everything else is disgusting. You just want this food. Can you taste it? Can you imagine it? If this were true, wouldn't you long for this food? There's a reality that most of us have tasted something like this that we probably didn't think of, um, and that's breast milk. Breast milk is an incredible gift. It is perfectly designed to give babies what they need to grow. And according to the Human Milk Community Interest Company, it is tailor-made for tiny humans. God made it just exactly as they need. And so it is Peter understood in our text today, this is exactly what we have in Christ. God has given us everything we need in him, the pure spiritual milk, the grace of Christ that sustains us, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This is what Peter wants us to hear today, that as those who have been born again, who are followers of Jesus, we are to crave the Lord. And we are to shed all destructive vices so that we might grow up into salvation. How does Peter say we go about this? There are two main things we see in our text today. First, in verse 1, he tells us we must put away all the destructive vices that will ultimately devour us. 
The first thing we see is that we have to put away all the destructive vices that will ultimately devour us. And secondly, what we're going to see is that God calls us to to crave for himself, crave and long for the Lord and taste that he is good, that we might grow up into salvation. Let's first look at verse 1. How do we put away, or what are we to put away? The destructive vices that will ultimately devour us. What does Peter include in this list? He says, put away first all malice. And this phrasing put away is not uncommon to scripture. It evokes imagery we see throughout the New Testament. Paul in Colossians 3 talks about doing away, putting off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes of Christ. In Hebrew, the authors of Hebrews talks about shedding the the weight that can entangle us and the sin that ensnares us so that we can run the race for Christ. In James, there's similar imagery of putting away the evil things and putting on the good deeds of Christ. And so it is here, Peter is speaking once again to his audience. And I just want to look back. I don't want to spend too much time. This first word here, so, draws us to remember or causes us to look back and remember what has just been said. So I, hopefully you were here last week, and if not, maybe you got a chance. Like I was in Children's Church, I listened to Jared's awesome sermon from last week. And I want you to think back to that and think about what it is that God was using Peter to tell the people and that he was reminding them that They were saved by Christ's work, not by their own work, and that they had been purified by that same good work of God, which called them to a sincere brotherly love, following in obedience and the example of Christ to love one another and to remember that the word of God was enduring, not like the rest of the things in the world, not like the other teachings that surrounded them, not like the persecutions they were facing, but that the goodness of God and that his word would persevere forever. And he reminds them at the very end of chapter one, this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So tells us to look back and think about that because of what Christ has done, because you have received his goodness, his grace through faith, and you've called on him as Lord and Savior, and you've confessed your sins and repented and asked for forgiveness and received that goodness of Christ and been born again, as Peter says, because of this now, he says, put away all these things. The message is clear for us today, brothers and sisters. If we are to be followers of Christ, we can have nothing to do with the works of the flesh. If we are to be followers of Jesus, if we are to claim to be born again, to believe the gospel and to call on Jesus as Lord and Savior, then we cannot continue to fill ourselves up on the things that kill us. Peter points us to first malice. Malice, we see is intentional ill will towards someone, a desire to do evil or to cause pain or injury or harm. Malice directly opposes the sincere brotherly love Peter has called us to because it wills the opposite of what love is. Love is willing the good for someone and malice wills bad or evil. And so we must consider and think about 
Put, what does it look like to put away malice? And first, maybe we step back and ask the question, what are the ways that we harbor malice in our lives? What are the ways we let malice creep in? Because when we read, if you're like me at all, it's really easy to read the definition to think about the examples. Uh, intentional ill will or to desire to do evil. I don't typically walk around just thinking about plotting all the evil ways I can treat people. In general, I try to think about doing the good by the grace of God. But I started praying and asking God to reveal, God, what are ways that we can fall into this? What are ways that we harbor malice in our hearts? One very practical, and you may find this silly, but as I was praying, this was the example the Lord brought to my heart. Very practical for me is when I'm driving. My sainthood may be called into question when I'm driving sometimes, and I, not because I'm like overtly trying to get out of the car, it's actually the much more subtle, what I find is I, I just don't think, I just focus on driving. But what I can do then is find that I get caught up in what I want to happen, and not thinking about intentionally willing good for someone else, loving, and when a car cuts me off, what's my first thought? Is it to pray for the person? Are they in a hurry? Maybe they need to get somewhere. Maybe something's wrong. Can I, what, what, is, what does it look like to will their good, to love them in this moment? Or, too often is the case, my thoughts either don't think about them at all or slip to the opposite of, man, that inconvenienced me. Man, that frustrated me. See, malice, you're going to see a common theme here, turns away from God and towards self. It focuses on what is done against us and so is rooted not in the perfect love of God, but in the flesh. It loses sight of what God has called us to and who God is. And if we're not careful, even in very subtle ways, we can allow malice to creep into our hearts. And then it will lead to greater ways. We see this, we see this in the church today. It's very easy, very easy to get along with people who you agree with, most of the time, right? Great to hang out with people that think the way you think and like to do the things you do. What about when people disagree with you? What about not just when they disagree with you, but now they actually disagree with you on something you consider really important? What about when they start saying things that aren't just in disagreement, but you feel are powerful statements against what you hold dear? Now what? Is it still so easy? What we see, or at least one thing I've been noticing as I was praying and as I was thinking about this, it is sad to see so much of the church across our country, people who call themselves brothers and sisters, speak in malice toward one another instead of brotherly love. We can have differing opinions and still love each other as Christ has loved us. That is what God calls us to. But when we let our guard slip and when we don't intentionally think about what it means to walk in this love, 
when we allow malice to creep in and we harbor it in our hearts, it not only corrodes us, but it damages the witness of the church and maligns the very name of Jesus that we proclaim to lift on high. Malice is the opposite. It is opposed to what is good in God and the love of Christ. So we have to root it out. We have to get rid of it. I prayerfully challenge you to consider what ways are you harboring malice? Ask God to show you any ways and to repent. Christ-like love leaves no room for malice. Next, Peter points us to all deceit. Deceit is a form of lying and trying to hide or distort the truth to get an advantage over someone else. Again, we, don't, we know deception probably even a little better than, than malice, so I won't labor the point here, but what we need to see is look back and remember that Jesus himself is the truth. So no deceit can be found in him. We can't be obedient to the truth for sincere brotherly love and practice deceit. Deception has no place in the church, brothers and sisters. What ways are we misrepresenting who God is through deceitful practices? Deceit not only misrepresents God by telling a lie, but it disrespects him through arrogant attempts at control and concealment. Deceit fails to recognize the sovereignty of God and puts us in the driver's seat, and it attempts to cover up what needs to have the light shown on it. The light reveals everything in the dark, and Jesus is the light of the world. In what ways do we practice deceit? I don't know about you, I was encouraged by Jared's sermon last week and his uh, desire and the feeling following the, the Spirit's lead to confess sin. And that was just a great example of what he, he even said. Some of you may think this is such a small thing, but I love my brother's heart because you could see it is no small thing. Even a small sin grieves our holy God. It was an example of deceit. And praise God, my brother is wise and and loves the Lord and loves his family and repented and he showed that illustration to us of what it looks like to confess sin and to seek God. And so I, I challenge you in the same way to ask God to search your hearts and show you where are you harboring, where are you practicing deceit? In what ways are you distorting the truth or trying to hide truth to gain advantage over someone else? And how can you repent and turn toward Christ? Christ-like love leaves no room for deceit. Peter next turns to a word and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a word we're probably familiar with. I often think back to the roots of this and, and its roots in drama and play acting. For someone to, to be on the stage and wear a mask, to be two-faced is literally where this comes from. It's related to deceit because, it, again, is this idea of pretending to be something you're not. Usually involving fooling others through acting one way in front of people to disguise heart motives. As I was reflecting on hypocrisy, 
I couldn't help but think about a message that um, Summit Church Pastor J.D. Greer gave this past week in Nashville at the annual SBC convention on the danger of Pharisaical um, leaven. And he warned us to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And I thought that was appropriate as we think about here because Jesus uses, tells us the Pharisees and the scribes are experts at hypocrisy. They were experts at hypocrisy. Why? Because they built up the law and put these burdens on people that they themselves had no intention to actually follow through. They expected people to do beyond what Christ had called them to and more than they were willing to do. And it was because they wanted to show themselves in a certain light, again, at the cost of others. Jesus reminds us, though, in the example of the Pharisees, it's not that we don't do good works. It's that we should pursue to do all the good things, but not neglect the weightier matters, justice and mercy. God is eternally true. His word endures forever. Hypocrisy has no place in the love of Christ, because again, it tells a lie about who God is. There was no pretending in God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In what ways do you practice hypocrisy? This is a word sometimes, I feel like maybe it's fallen a little bit, but for a while it was a buzzword. It was real common to sling this word around, you hypocrite. Social media everywhere. Anytime we disagreed with somebody else, oh, they're just a hypocrite, right? It's so easy, again, to point the finger. So easy to push off the blame. But what Peter is reminding us, what we must do is come to the Lord and ask God, God, please show me where, where have I failed? Where am I pretending? Where am I not clinging to the eternal truth that you've given? Show us, Lord. Christ-like love leaves no room for hypocrisy. Peter says next, envy. Envy is inherently selfish. It puts our desires and wants above the interests of others. I think in Philippians 2, and what Paul calls us to, and having Christ-like love and humility, and envy does the opposite of that. It wrongly desires what others have. It is the opposite of contentment that Paul goes on to talk about in Philippians chapter 4. Envy takes the focus off of God and puts it on our situation or circumstance or, again, on ourself. It ignores God's good gifts and thinks about, but what if I just had? What if I could be like? Or maybe there's this. What we have to realize is essentially envy says, God, you are not enough for me. And I don't trust your plan. Christ's example shows us how we combat envy and cling to the truth. He completely was satisfied in the Father and was obedient to his will. Jesus modeled it for us. And he showed us envy tears down 
but the love of Christ, Christ-like love builds others up. And so it is, Peter calls us to do away with, to put away all the ways that we think about, that we tear others down through putting ourselves first instead of God and others. And think about how can we build others up in Christ-like love? In what ways do we practice envy? In what ways have you let it creep into your life? It's through what your neighbor has that you don't? Is it through the position at work that you've been trying so hard for, but someone else keeps getting promoted instead of you? Is it through the grades that you wish you could have made in school, but you watch your peers make as you struggle through your classes? It's so easy to take our eyes off of Christ and to become discontent with what God has given us and not to remember all the good gifts he's lavished on us. Ask God to search your heart and to show you where, God, where? Where am I not trusting in you? Where am I not satisfied in you? Help me to be like the psalmist in Psalm 90 and say, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and have gladness all my days. Christ-like love leaves no room for envy. Finally, Peter points us and says, and to get rid of all slander. Slander is any evil speech, any words that would harm another person. And in this particular instance, covers both what would usually just be uh, talk about slander, which is false speech behind someone's back, but also covers gossip, which could be true speech that is meant to harm behind somebody's back. There's a form of deception that is often rooted in envy. Again, wanting to tear someone down to promote yourself or just to feel better putting them closer to what you feel like your level is. It ultimately portrays, tips our hand that we have a low view of God and his creation. Because if we valued God and what he told us about his creation, we would know that slandering is undermining the image of God in other people. It forgets who God says we are. Each and every one of us made in his image, having inherent dignity because of the worth we possess of that God has bestowed on us. And when we slander, we throw that out. We forget who God says he is and who he's created us to be. Slander, I feel like for me personally, as I was just praying about this, is a tricky one. Uh, the Lord started rooting this out in my life years ago, and it's still something I, I struggle with. I, I feel like I've talked to some, some of you know me, and my like, natural second language is sarcasm. Um, and I, I just grew up in an environment that was part of it. I, I feel I love like satire, and that's good sometimes, but it can really lead to speech that is not helpful, and oftentimes is hurtful in other times. And what I found tricky about slander is, though there is often an intentional element to it, when we are not careful to watch it, it becomes so ingrained as part of what we do that it can even become unintentional. And we're doing it without even realizing it. When we speak about other people, are we building them up? It's that simple. When we speak about other people, 
Are we valuing them as the worthy image bearers of God that they are? Or do we make statements that tear that apart and malign the good name of God? Even small things. What business do we have to talk about other people in any way except for which builds them up and shows God? In what ways do we practice slander? There's the obvious ones. When we mess up and we're angry and we speak intentionally. But what about in the break room? People are just tossing around things. They're just chatting. Do you think about what you say there? What about when you're hanging out with some old friends and they start talking about things maybe that have been, you thought have been in your past, but it's starting to bring up? You join in? What about on social media when there's a screen of anonymity? Everybody else was saying things in the comments. I was just, I was just commenting along. There is no place for slander. God, show us. Search our hearts and show us what ways do we practice slander and let us root, us, root it out. Christ-like love leaves no room for slander. Well, as we look at this first part, what, as we transition, I want to point out one thing that our analogy from earlier breaks down as we think about this because we talked about the good food that we need and that there's junk food that we can eat and it tastes good, but it won't satisfy us. But what I want us to see is that the Bible tells us, make no mistake, these things, these vices aren't just junk food that are bad for us, but that we can indulge in every now and then as long as we have the good things too. No, these are cancers that must be cut out. These are poisons that have to be purged. They have no place in the love of God. They have no place in the body of Christ, his people, the church. Friends, I don't come to, to yell and to be serious and to say, to focus on all the negative, but I just feel the burden of God telling us we will never be the church God has called us to be if we don't take seriously the sin that is in our midst. God wants us to see there is something so much greater these things will only kill our witness for Christ, steal our joy in Christ, and fill us with death that leaves a dying world looking on and smelling death all over us. But thank God there is a better way. Put these away and long for the pure spiritual milk of Christ. Look at verse 2 with me. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. We know the imagery. And what I want to point out, Peter is saying here, just as we understand that infants need milk, and they can tell the difference between the real thing and something else, so it is we need God. We need the word of God, and we need the grace of Christ to sustain us. And as followers of his, we should not settle for anything less. We should long for the real thing. 
And we should be able to tell when we, somebody gives us something different. As I was thinking about this, some of you know I have three children now. Um, our youngest is just over two months old. And I think he is a good example of this, right? He knows he, he wants milk. That's great. But I was actually was thinking about this. I thought, you know what? My experience has taught me my oldest daughter is maybe the best example of this for me. Ada, um, I love Ada. She's awesome. When she was younger, we had to do a formula for a little bit. And I remember the struggle because even then she knew. She's like, wait a minute. This ain't, this ain't the thing. This ain't what I wanted. Right? And I was thinking about that even now um, with her. This still continues on when we get her milk. It has to be like to the closest hundredth of a degree of the right temperature or she'll reject it. Uh, and if you, we sometimes have to give her medicine and uh, like try to sneak some medicine into the milk. Oh, no, no. She knows. Right? Like there's no hiding it. She can tell if I've diluted the real thing. Right? She can tell if there's even a little bit of something else in there. She knows the real thing, and that's what she wants, and she doesn't settle for less. Well, my daughter, at least in this way, has taught me something about following Christ, because that's exactly what we are to do. Settle for nothing less than the true thing, the pure spiritual milk. The word here that Peter's using, pure spiritual milk, Peter could be pointing us to talking about specifically the word of God, the, the scriptures, but what I actually think we see is what commentator um, Job's tells us, that this is pointing us to something even greater, but the idea of the entire grace that Christ gives us that sustains us. So it includes the word of God, but it is very, the very essence of Christ's sustaining grace is the spiritual milk that we need. And doesn't that make sense? Because by it, you may grow up into salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, and we continue to walk with God by that same very grace. Like an infant with milk, God's word and Christ's grace causes us to grow. We have been born again. If we are walking with Jesus, followers of his, believe the gospel and call on his name, then we will grow as we long for and take part in the sustaining, growing grace of Christ. We can't survive apart from God's grace. The, the imagery is stark as a newborn, as an infant cannot survive apart from the milk. It needs to nourish it and cause it to grow. So it is with those who follow Christ. There is no life apart from him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we see verse 3, Peter points us to the truth that God does not want us just to survive in Christ, but he desires so much more for us. And he wants us to personally experience him and to know his goodness. Peter, here in verse 3, is quoting back or thinking back to Psalm 34, the Psalm of David, one that is relevant to Peter's audience and still to us today. David is writing 
and thanking God for deliverance from persecution. And in the middle of other hardships, he stops to praise God and to remind himself and the others that God is still all they need. And he says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Peter points us to that and says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the phrase everything else hinge on. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. If you have tasted the Lord and you know his goodness, if you have personally experienced, to taste is often used as a metaphor for personal experience, closeness. If you know him and his salvation, then everything else follows. We get rid of all the things that have nothing to do with him. We persevere in the love, the sincere brotherly love of Christ. Only those who know salvation and put away the trash, the garbage, the waste of the previous life will know and taste that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I want to close by thinking for a few moments on some practical ways of how do we do this second point. We talked about these vices and thinking and challenges, how to put them away. The destructive vices that will devour us if we don't get rid of them. But God calls us to something positive, to crave him and taste that he is good. To experience him, to know him and his goodness personally. That we might grow up, continue to grow in the salvation that he's called us to. So the question then becomes, how do we do this? What does it look like to crave the Lord, to taste his goodness and to grow in salvation. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but here are eight things. As I look to this passage and to Psalm 34 that I think God teaches us are ways that we can learn to crave, to long for God, to taste that he's good and to grow in salvation. First, we should be people who read, study, and memorize God's word. Do you want to taste the Lord's goodness? Do you want to know him, personally experience him? Like David did, like Peter did, like these believers, our brothers and sisters from thousands of years ago and throughout the history? Well, if so, then let's go back to the thing that unites us, the, the, the revelation God has given us of himself, his word, the scriptures. God has spoken to us. He's given us all we need. I think of Psalm 119, and there's so many different verses we quote, but how does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought after you. Your word I have treasured up in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Again, Psalm 119, let my soul live that it may praise you and help me by your ordinances. Our souls live to praise God, but they only can do that through God's help through his word. We go to the New Testament. No, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God. As God breathed and is profitable for correction, reproof, and rebuke, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfectly equipped for every good work. 
God's word is a gift to us. Psalmist tells us it is sweeter than honey straight from the comb and more valuable than gold and silver. Do we value it that way? Do we truly think of it as, as such? And do we use it, do we put it, prioritize it in our lives that others would see it and say, yes, that is true? Or would others see it and say, yeah, I think they do something with that. It's maybe somewhat important to them, but I'm not really sure where it stands. How much do you talk about God's word with other people in casual conversation? How much time are you spending studying and memorizing? How much time do you just spend going back to the Psalms and letting your soul be encouraged? God's word is good. It endures forever. And it's one of the main ways he uses us to to taste and know that he is good. And so grow in salvation. So first we read, we study and memorize his word. Second, we practice prayer. We must be a people of prayer. God has given us means to hear from him through his word, to know him, to be trained and equipped. But he's also given us the opportunity to directly communicate with him. You ever think about that? The miracle of prayer, that the God of all creation communes with you and me. He'll speak to us and listen to us, incline his ear to us. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, prayer is so important that rejoice always and pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are to pray at all times in the spirit. Constant communion with God, keeping the line of communication open. No relationship can grow without effective communication. It goes both ways, and God has given us the means to do that. We are to be a people of prayer. No great work of God has been accomplished without prayer first preceding it. Prayer is an incredible gift, and it is an incredible work that we can all take part in to know God more and to taste his goodness. Third, we enjoy good creation. Enjoy the good creation. God has given us many good gifts have you ever just stopped and enjoyed a sunrise or a sunset? Have you ever stared at the night sky and been overwhelmed at the uncountable amount of stars over your head? Have you ever stood on the beach and listened to the sounds of the waves and gotten lost in the vastness of the blue before you? It's given us so many good gifts. You ever tasted a pizza roll? Just perfectly cooked and salted, right out of the oven, crispy, but not too hot, hot to burn your mouth. Man, what a good gift. We don't have to feel guilty about enjoying good creation. The problem comes is when, when you get our priorities out of order and we make the creation to be like the creator. Creation is a good gift, but it's a terrible creator. God has given us good creation to enjoy and to know him and to partake in. I love one of the ways I think about, C.S. Lewis talked about this in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle. The end of the book is they're transitioning into uh, 
out of Narnia, the world they've known, into the forever Narnia, to their eternal home. As they're looking around, they're saying there's a sense of longing and fulfillment that they can't put their finger on. And finally, one of the characters says, you know, I think I figured it out that this place um, is, or, or Narnia that we knew was somewhat like this place, but this one's better. I think we like the old Narnia so much because we were really, I was longing for this place all along. I didn't know it until now. This is the better Narnia. I love that imagery because, one, it teaches us to think about what is coming, but it also reminds us that the good gifts God has given us now point us to the good gift we will have in eternity with God. Four, watch your tongue speak words of life. If you want to know a way to taste and see the Lord is good, to grow in salvation, watch your tongue. James warns us that the tongue Ceaseless fire can cause all sorts of damage. Proverbs comes over and over again to talk about how careless words will destroy, but the one who wants to be wise must watch his words. Watch your tongue. Peter tells us here as well. And not only that, speak words of life. I love Ephesians 4.20. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, thinking about not just not doing the bad things, but thinking about how are we actively using our words to speak life into people, to build people up and so show Christ through our words. Watch your tongue, speak words of life. Five, turn from evil and do good. I won't belabor the point here. Go back to Psalm 34, verses 13 and 14, and David tells us this exact thing. He says, stop doing evil. Think of Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Stop doing evil. Seek justice. Do what is right. Do good. If we want to be people who taste and see the Lord is good, then why don't we actually take part in the very thing God made us for? Think of Ephesians 2.10. We've been saved by grace through faith, not by our works. But then he goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. Jesus says they will know you by your love for one another. People aren't going to know our love for one another just because we have feelings of love toward each other. It has to be the action of intentionally promoting the good of others, seeking to love people as Christ loved us. Turn from evil, do good. Six, be a peacemaker. Again, look at Psalm 34. Verse 14, we are to be people who don't promote a false peace by lying or taking the easy way out, but promote true peace by holding on to the truth of Christ, who seek to unify in the bond of love that only comes through the good news of the gospel and Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers. Seven, set your mind on that which will last. Or in other words, think about eternity. You want to taste and see the Lord is good. You want to grow in salvation. Cling to the spiritual milk God has given you. Then set your mind on that which will last. Think about what Peter has just said before this. He spent this time reminding them that the word of God is imperishable. That they have will endure. And this is the word that was proclaimed to them. That we receive. Set our minds 
on the things that will last. Think about Psalm 90 again. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Do we think about the end? Do we think about what comes next? Do we think about eternity and the blessing it is and how what we do now has eternal ramifications? Are we pointing people toward kingdom goodness or leading them away to eternal darkness? Your words and your actions matter. Set your mind on that which will last and see and know Christ. And finally, preach the good news. Preach the good news. The good news is the gospel. You want to taste and see, you want to taste the Lord is good, to remember and be sustained by his grace, well, preach the gospel to yourself every day, every moment. This is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news of the gospel that Jesus died in our place. The Son of God came and lived in the flesh and lived a perfect life. Then went to the cross in our place. Died a sinless death, but didn't stay dead, but rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. So that we could be restored to relationship with God if we confess that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ is Lord. That God raised him from the dead. We cry out and ask for forgiveness. God will forgive us and give us life with him. This is the good news of the gospel that was preached. And it is the good news that God has entrusted to each and every one of us. It is not a special message for some. It is to be the banner for every person who calls on the name of Jesus. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. It's God's good news for salvation to all who believe. So if you want to taste and know that the Lord is good, there is no greater goodness than the gift of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself and preach the good news to others and all that you do. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you lead us to know you and to have life with you. I pray that you would help us to walk with you, God. Help us to remember you. God, help us to take seriously sin in our lives. To not minimize that, to not shift responsibility or blame, but to, to truly come before you repentant. God, and crying out, brokenhearted over our sin and asking you to help us to put them all away, God. Knowing your glory is at stake and the goodness of others in the gospel. God, we want others to know you and so help us to walk with you and help us to long for the pure spiritual milk of your sustaining grace. Help us to not settle for anything less, God to cling to you and know you cling to us, God. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Help us to live it out. And all we do to taste your goodness. We thank you. We love you. We praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.